I switched to UV, linear UV and halogen heat, um, which was the infrared A and B, I got 100% fertility and the highest fecundity I'd ever had. Early 1900s, this dude in Germany thought that he would use a barrierless version of captivity where you got the moats and you got the you can see them with it and they started to add some naturalistic someone will and they used pet words like semantics matters so back in the day it was bars and cages and the animals were kept and they were keepers it's not a cage it's and it went from cage to enclosure to display to habitat the animal out on habitat I think there is an opportunity out there. You know, everybody wants to become a YouTuber at this point. If you, if somebody took one of those common species, you know, one of the colubrids or the ball pythons that are commonly bred in these you know, relatively unenriched settings, you could have a channel that's dedicated towards. Welcome to episode number 86 of the Animals at Home podcast. My name is Dylan Perrin. Thank you so much for tuning in today. A few housekeeping items before we jump into today's episode. If you're interested in supporting the show, there's a few ways you can do that. The easiest way is when you're listening to the Apple podcasting app, give the show a five-star rating. We're collecting quite a few of those at this point, and they do really help our visibility in the app, so that does help a ton. You can head to animalsathome.ca slash shop and pick yourself up a t-shirt or sweater. $5 for every t-shirt or sweater is automatically donated to the Amazon Rainforest Conservancy. Or if you're interested in having early access to episodes or having the opportunity to submit questions to upcoming guests, you can join us on Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com slash animals at home. Thank you very much to our sponsor, CustomReptileHabitats.com. If you are looking for anything reptile-related, make sure you go check out the website. You will find an affiliate link in both the show notes as well as the YouTube description. That is an affiliate link, which means if you do purchase something, a small commission comes back to me at no extra cost to you. So you'll be getting yourself a brand new piece of equipment, whatever it is, a Miss King or a Universal Rock background or a new enclosure, and you know that that is also helping support the podcast. And as always, if you're looking for more information on the podcast, make sure you head to animalsathomenetwork.com. There you'll find show notes for all of the episodes that have been produced. Okay, so let's jump into today's episode. Now, today's episode is actually quite special to me because we have TC Houston back on the podcast. For those of you who don't know, TC was the very first guest of the Animals at Home podcast all the way back to episode number three in the fall of 2018. Now, TC did appear once again on a round table, I believe, last December, but this is his first time returning as a sole guest. And as I say in the introduction of the podcast, really, I don't even know if this podcast would exist had it not been for that first initial interview I did with TC. I was incredibly scared to have that conversation. I'm a very introverted person. The actual podcast itself was a very difficult thing for me to start, not because of the work involved, but because of the... I guess lack of confidence for lack of a better word. I was really nervous to be in front of the camera, be on YouTube in general, and I really wasn't sure at all if I could even carry out a meaningful conversation with somebody. And the podcast we did originally, it went really well and it sort of set the foundation for the pod for the future of the podcast and it gave me a ton of confidence moving forward. And I really don't know without that episode being as successful as it was if I would have carried on with the podcast at all. So I really do owe a lot to TC. I'm incredibly grateful for him and it was amazing having him back on the show 
And I can tell you right now that this episode is a whole lot better than the original one we recorded. Not that there was anything wrong with the original one. It was actually a pretty good episode, but this one in particular is just full of great conversation. I think TC and I actually broke some new ground here and it will be very valuable, especially for those of you who are interested in getting into reptile breeding at some point in the future. So in the episode, we really focus in on progressing herpetoculture forward, especially on a welfare standpoint. But really the main focus here is small batch breeding. And I think TC is one of the best examples of small batch breeders out there. And we discuss how small batch breeding will A, improve the welfare of the animals across the board, B, increase species diversity. And we also discuss some amazing opportunities that are out there for those of you who want to get into breeding and maybe even want to start a YouTube channel as well. If you're somebody that wants to document what you're doing, I think, and we thought just as we were having this conversation, that there are some incredible opportunities out there that are animal-centric and welfare-centric that are also breeding-focused. I really hope that if you are into reptile breeding or want to get into reptile breeding, that you can use this episode as a good solid foundation of where to move forward or how to lay out your ethos as it when it comes to your breeding operation. And if you listen closely, I think you could pick up a few of those opportunities that we talked about that really you could fill a niche that really nobody is doing yet. So it will be kind of a race to who gets to this finish line first. If you want to start one of these projects and post it on YouTube, I think it would be really cool. Anyway, let's jump into the episode. I don't want to say too much further. Here is my conversation with TC. TC, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for returning. Thanks, Dylan. It's good to be here, man. It's good well, to first, see you. I have to say, I owe you a ton of gratitude because you were the first guest. It was the third episode of the podcast that we did or that I did. And you know, the first two were just myself talking. You were the first person to come on the show. You were not the first person I contacted. I contacted a whole bunch of people kind of around that same time. And I got a lot of no responses or no's. And you were one the one person that said yes. And cool. it, it that really made or sort of it was a huge moment for me in the podcast because had that not happened, I don't know if this would even exist. And maybe you're not even aware of of that, but it this was a hard experience for me to even go forward with because I'm an introverted person. I'm not super interested in being on camera or having a YouTube channel, but I had this like very deep fear of doing it. And this is one of the first times in my life where I was like, I'm just going to do it, go forward with it and just see what happens. And I used that fear to guide me. So part of that was, you know, reaching out to you and we did the podcast and, and it went really well. But I'll tell you, I was incredibly scared beforehand. Very, very scared, <laughs> like very nervous, but it went really well. And uh, so I have to thank you so much for, for getting the ball rolling. No, man, that's awesome. I'm, I was thrilled to be there and um, I don't care if I was your hundredth choice. I'm happy with that, you know. Yeah, I, I, should, I should say you. <laughs> it's not that you weren't my first choice. It was just I was just sort of doing the scatter shot to everybody I could I, I think of, and uh, and you had left a really sort of meaningful comment on one of my videos. So I thought, okay, now this is this is somebody that I think we could have a conversation with, and yeah, it it, it was great. And like I was telling you on uh, on DMs yesterday or the day before, I did re-listen to that episode which is probably one of the first times I've ever re-listened to an episode of, and this is going back almost three years now. So I was getting ready to cringe and there was some cringy moments on my part. I wasn't super happy with the way, <laughs> with the way I talk, but it was actually a pretty solid episode. It wasn't bad. I listened to it too. And I was like, oh man, what am I going to say? Oh dear. It wasn't bad. Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty thrilled. No, it was pretty good. There, there were some interesting things that I'll bring up later, but, but before we go too far. Can you give everybody just a sort of a brief update about your reptile operation at home? Some people maybe may not know, or some people want an update from last time we spoke. Last time you were on the podcast was a round table. We didn't get into personal collections. So why don't you just lay out what you're up to right now? 
Um, well, I am a small batch breeder. So I, I term that as in I'm not going for high numbers. I'm going for high quality. And uh, I breed several different species. I, I really focus on blue tongue skinks, um, specifically the Australian animals, the eastern and northern variety, which are the best, in my opinion, the best pets for people. But I also keep rosy boas and, and gilas and um, gidgey skinks and pink tongue skinks and Angolan pythons. And uh, I've got Stimson's python eggs incubating. Fingers crossed we'll have a good clutch there. Um, and I absolutely just love the small batch breeding, the idea of just focusing on animal welfare, trying to be an example, and also um, really want to work on myself and continue to grow. That's one of my huge goals is to just continue to grow, not in volume or size, but in quality and substance. That's a real big thing for me. And so uh, my channel or my page is reptilemountain.com. You can go check it out. It's uh, I like mountains and I like reptiles. So that's why I named it that. There you go. <laughs> and you do have a, sort of a nice eclectic collection. I know people are starting to get annoyed by the term collection. I don't, I don't like to go too far down the semantics, but you do have a wide variety of things, which is kind of nice. And that's sort of what I like about, you know, what, what you're doing. And since we talked last on the podcast in 2018, what are some things that have changed and what are some things that you've learned? Well, um, recently, and I guess over the past three years, the hobby has really started to pick up some momentum on certain technologies, certain um, welfare concepts. And it's not that people didn't know them back in the day, but just like a kind of the diffusion of innovation, people, there's innovators and they knew stuff and there's adopter, early adopters and late, early majority. And, and people are starting to pick up on that, that early adoption of these new stuff, and maybe even early majority, like there's a group of people and I'm part of that group that's just starting to catch on to some of the new technologies. And so I started getting involved with um, UV. That's something that's been a huge transformation for me. And I know uh, folks that don't use UV just get super tired of people saying, oh, yeah, you need UV. Um, after the, the readily available solometer, it started to become more available and you could test the stuff. That's when I really took on the idea of I can, I can see this invisible light. You know, or I have a way that this company's not selling me a product that's literally invisible to me. And so I was having a real problem buying invisible light. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they're like, trust me, the box says it's there. I'm like, you know, yeah. so once I had something in my hand where I could really say, okay, well, now this box is also telling me the invisible light is there. Um, and it is really there. And now it is there and I can test it. I really wanted to start using that more. And I started hanging around more people that were talking stronger into welfare and less about variety and colors and spices and types and all that stuff and, and more on quality. And that really inspired me to, to do more research myself. The more research that I was able to kind of understand, I could form my own perspective and then start to grow again. And so I, I upgraded all my adult animals to UV and halogen or infrared A and B heat. Um, I've really been updating a lot of my, my collection on that. My goal now is to have a hundred percent of all adult animals on, um, 
infrared A and B access and UVA and UVB access, in addition to more space to provide more activity for um, their overall physiological enrichment and psychological enrichment. So that's something that I've really wanted to, to and I have been transitioning to. So since we talked last, I've got a hell of a lot higher electric bill. That's for sure. Yeah, I was just going to say, because, you know, <laughs> even though you classify yourself as a small batch breeder, making the move to add UV and, and infrared to all your animals is not a small move money-wise. You must have spent Oh, it costs thousands. so much. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. My profit margin went to like, zoop. Yeah. Um, and I'm okay with that. I, I'm actually thrilled with that because it actually flipped around and it's paying dividends um, for the animals and for my own my own peace of mind. Right. Um, and that's really huge. And it did cost a money. And I had to hire an electrician to rewire things because you can't pull too much because a heat tape is very low in electricity Right. Ver versus halogen. And, and now I have, I'm probably one of the only people on my block that runs an air conditioner in the basement during the winter. <laughs> yeah, I was saying, yeah. Now you have a whole bunch of residual heat. Yeah. Cause I got heat and air conditioning going to keep the cool in small cold enough and the hot ends hot enough. And I'm like, ah, but I love it. I love it. Cause the animals are st starting to really reward me. So, well, and I think I want to touch on the, the solar meter part because I know we've talked privately as well, just could, because I think you are someone that likes to tinker and you like to s sort of do the science science with yourself in your, in your own hands. And you've had some kind of weird experiences with the solar meter. Could you run through a couple of them or at least one story I know off the top of my head? Yeah. So what happened was I was doing, I was using UV. Um, I was using the coil bulbs, the little, um, kind of you just screw in, um, on the lighting groups, they were like, oh, those are junk. They don't put out enough UV. So I was like, well, if they put out some, that's more than zero. I can deal with some is better than none. And I'll use that as a psychological. It will light up the animals and let them see because they can have a little, they have a better perspective on UV. They can see the invisible stuff. That we mm -hmm. So um, I was like, hey, why not? Psychological enrichment. So I put them all on my animals. Then I started to test the, the, the lights with the solar meter and most of them were doing okay. Uh, but then a couple of them, were off the charts high, like unhealthy, safe, radiate to death high. Um, for you know, like a high UV index of eleven would be not very wise for a human to be outside or any animal to really be radiating under that. And these were fifteen, eighteen UVI index, which is potentially lethal. Yeah. And had I not had the solar meter, I would have not known. Mm -hmm. And I removed them from my animals immediately. And I was like, that's never going to happen again. And, and, but it scared me. Um, so now I'm on like a, a solar meter test rate, like even with my linear stuff, which has been more, far more stable, uh, and never gone that high, but no one ever said to me in those forums when they're like, Hey, you know, coils are junk. They're bad. They weren't telling me they're bad. Cause they'll radiate your animal to death. They're just right. saying they're bad. So I'm thinking, okay, so they're weak. Weak is fine. But no, it could actually, it, in the, my instances, almost killed my animals. Yeah. And so I was like freaked out. So I was so thankful to have that little handheld device. It's paid for itself a thousandfold for yeah. my animals. Well, I can't imagine not having them. Yeah, exactly. I'm not, saying, I'm not paid by them either. <laughs> no, no. This is not <laughs> a sponsored video. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> when you do look at it, you're like, oh my God, 300 bucks or whatever it is, $250 for that thing. You think, is it really worth it? But 
I, I think many people don't even think about that side of using the meter. Like most of us think, okay, it could probably pay for itself if I get 14 months out of a bulb and I do that over a couple of years, that's fine. But most people don't realize that, yeah, some sometimes that can happen. To, now, I think with the linear bulbs, they are more stable, like you're saying. But yeah, I had no clue. I mean, I've heard people talk about, you know, letting bulbs burn in. I don't know if that's something that needs to happen or, but I mean, even then, yes. I don't, w- w- did the, did you let the bulbs go for long enough to see oh, if yeah. they, yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah, I did. Um, uh, you know, they usually say it's like a hundred hour burn in time. Mm-hmm. And so, um, I, uh, the ones that I had tested had been on for three months, but wow. so well, well into the burn in time and not even close to expired and they were deadly. And then I bought some to test and then the burn in time, they were way too high, but after the burn in time, they were still way too high. And not just in UVI index, but in microwatts for centimeter squared. So they were, I have both solar meters. I bought both. Cause after that I was like, well, hell I'm buying everything, <laughs> yeah. you know? <laughs> and yeah. so I, I, I tested it. Cause I mean, my animal they're on, they exist in my, I mean, it's my fault they're here. Yes. And so, and they're sentient animals and there's no way I'm going to be responsible and intentionally or knowingly going to let them sit under something that's going to harm them because of me, because I just wanted to save some cash. Like I, it was hurting. I hurt. I had to pay some money, but I got it. And it was well worth it. Yeah. Terrified me. though. And yeah. I know that I think I've brought this story up or maybe it was Liam on one podcast about the experience that you had after adding, you know, proper UV to, to your, the adults in, in sort of your breeding operation. And I think we've, we quoted you wrong in the round table that, or in the, in the, the rack debate, I think it was where, so maybe yeah. could, could you, could you uh, clarify what you saw when you added the linear bulbs? So it was a cup, uh, it was a, a twofold. It was the uh, infrared mm-hmm. A and B. So the halogen heat and the UV together. And I had, so I went from, so I've only had one stillborn live skink baby ever or one stillborn baby ever. Um, and I was always using some sort of top, heat with my animals for the most part of my adults. But when I switched to UV, linear UV and halogen heat, um, which was the infrared A and B, I got a hundred percent fertility and the highest fecundity I'd ever had the year previous before I'd added the infrared, um, and the UV, the linear, I'd had the coils and I had uh, ceramic heat emitters, which is infrared C, which doesn't penetrate skin as deep. Mm -hmm. So, um, it, it basically is kind of just warms the skin. And so over time, convection of the hot skin warms the rest of them, which isn't ideal. Um, you really want to penetrate deep into the core. So it's like a even heating, which is more natural and replicates the sun. And you know this, but, um, so when I did that the previous year, when I didn't, let me back up, when I didn't do it, I had bred a higher number of females and had X number of animals. The next year when I switched, I, I reduced the number of females cause that I had too many babies and I was overwhelmed and it was no longer pleasant. I, I was angry at them for pooping instead of just being like, okay, poop, here it comes. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was like, why did you do that? Cause they're animals. Um, cause it was just so much. So I cut down so that I didn't have so many babies, but I increased some of the technology and either it was bad luck or the technology. Could be, I'm not, you know, that's a one-off, it could be a one-off side, but what happened was they had more babies with less females. And I was like, whoa, 
what kind of cruel trick is this? I'm trying to cut down on my babies and now I'm swimming in, in, in animals. Um, but it was very interesting. So I've cut back even more so that I don't do that again. Yeah. But, but it was interesting because I think there was something to do with that UV that was absolutely accurate and most optimal for their health. And then the infrared heating the core, really getting to the embryo that's inside the mother um, in a more even thing. Uh, I think that did something. And I, I it's speculation at this time because I don't have any papers on it, but maybe. So, yeah, that is really interesting. So basically litter size must have gone up by at least twofold or maybe three times. Yeah. Yeah. I had females that were normally giving seven, eight, nine, we're having 18, 15, <laughs> 12. You must have just been like, like, what's happening here? <laughs> <laughs> and they were all like really chunky, healthy little bubs. And then they were just vigorous little animals and the females recovered very fast. It was just really cool. So I was like, well, I'm not changing this. Yeah. You know, I'm going to freeze, do right this for a little while and see what happens. Cause so now I'm doing it again. We'll see what happens. Yeah, it's really interesting. And, and it does make sense that, you know, giving that heat internally, because it's not like they were, like you said, it's not like you were having stillborns before. So it's not like embryos were developing into fetuses, into babies internally. Right. They were just probably just maybe either aborting them when they were still small enough and just, you know, doing the 10 or 12 or whatever it is, or they didn't even exist. Maybe there wasn't enough. I don't, I don't know what was going on inter- internally, but it's really interesting. It's, I was fascinated. And so I've, like immediately moved my live bearing female snakes to UV um, to, to see if, and, and halogen heat um, or at least incandescent. It doesn't have to be halogen. It can be a reptile specialty bulb, but yeah. the type that will put out infrared. And so, yeah, that was, uh, it was very fascinating to me. <laughs> and so we're going to keep going with it. It matches the sun more than anything else. And I think the sun is what they evolved to use. So I'm going to go with that. Yeah. And and this is where some of that investment in the equipment could potentially pay off for a breeder's bottom line, right? Is if you're doubling oh, yeah. or tripling your output, you can actually justify that big expense, and I mean, it's going to pay itself off in two years, and then you're going to have this extra profit. Yeah, yeah, because I mean, you, you could have uh, you know a rack with no light and have you know twice the females and produce the same amount of babies um, that I am with rack and light. Now I'm not. This isn't a promise. I'm not making any trying to make any wild claims, but it seems to be going that direction. Um, logic seems to be pointing that direction, and I have no reason to change it. <laughs> and so, yeah. yeah, you can get some bang for your buck. So, for yourself, how do you maintain open mindedness when it comes to your reptile care? Because it's easy to say open minded if your change is in thought doesn't equal more money, you know, like it's easy to, for someone to be open-minded when they, when there's no consequence to how they change your thought, but for you to actually change the way you're thinking about keeping, especially with the lighting, for example, like you were already doing all these amazing things. That's why we had, I had you on in the first place. You, you were, you had this animal centric focus and you were already had these big tubs and everything. And, but how, how do you, how do you stay open-minded? Because now, you know, you make a decision and then you got to go, okay, there's the credit card bill. It was very hard and it's been very hard. And, and in some cases I've actually had to downsize um, the number of animals and it's a, it's a super difficult decision to make, uh, especially rehoming animals that I, I don't want to just go off into uh, pass the buck, kick a can down the road kind of thing where they end up in not, not a great situation. Yeah. So it was really concerning for me to figure out how to do that. Um, 
downsizing was probably the first step because if, if you re remove a, an animal from the, the bill, from the, the feeding side of things and the maintaining side of things, that frees up space, it frees up money. Uh, and so I had to reduce in order to expand. And that is not part of our reptile hobby culture. <laughs> yes, exactly. Um, and I, I didn't just rehome to replace, you know, like, oh, I'm tired of this species. Let me get a new species. Um, it was to, to upgrade what I have and do well at keeping well and then work on breeding well. And that reducing was really hard. And so one of the things that I tried to decide is that animal welfare is going to always be coming first. And if it's reasonably achievable, I'm going to try to do it. Mm -hmm. um, there are certain levels where, you know, you see some awesome like vivariums that are super decked out and there's just tons of glass. I hate cleaning glass. It offends me to see a dirty piece of glass. Even if the cage is clean, yeah. a spot on the glass means a dirty cage in my, my psycho brain. <laughs> and so it like ruins my day. And so I'm in there cleaning. All. So I won't be, you won't see me with like massive glass enclosures everywhere simply because I hate cleaning glass. Uh, but maybe enclosures that are large that I don't have to have a lot of glass, but help the animal. And so it, it has to be like a balance. And I, I really slowly think it through and I don't have like a formalized process. Um, I do have a little chart that I've kind of created that I try to build my growth towards optimal. It's kind of based off of Liam's uh, pyramid of reptile mm -hmm. welfare. Um, I took that and I kind of tweaked it a little bit to how I saw wellness and, uh, I kind of go off that. Yeah, you almost do need a system that lays out logical steps because it's so hard, like you said, because I know you're someone who is actually quite attached to the animals you have. You're not just like a breeder that walks through and you have the thousands of animals that you don't even know. I think you personally know each animal very well. So to actually move them on is not an easy thing. And it's hard to make the decision if that's the end game. But if you have a logical sort of, if animal welfare is first and these are my goals then maybe that's how you go through that process without bring, right. without letting the emotion tip you to one side. Right. Cause it, it's a, and it's a difficult emotion because you want the best for your animal, but you also want the best for the other animals too. It's just like, what do we do with this? It's been really difficult. Like, and then to try and do a project. So say you want to do um, line breeding for a trait and you want to do it well, because that's important because you can inbreed all you want and get, great looking animals for two generations. And then you've just completely pooped the bed and, yeah, yeah. and, and the rest of the world's now got these animals that are sickly and you're harming people, harming animals and customers and the community. So, you know, you do it well, you need a lot of animals mm -hmm. or at least a good diversity. And then you need to raise those animals up. And so you really have to calculate out long distance. How are you going to cycle these animals through? Where are they going to go? um, space wise. And it's, it's a challenge. I'm working right now and trying to figure out how to keep a high, high unrelatedness collection for one particular trait of one of my skinks, uh, that I have. And it's been a headache <laughs> yeah. trying to figure out where I'm going to put the offspring, keep the offspring, rotate the offspring to make sure that they don't, uh, it's just a lot of work to figure that out, to do it well. Um, and like responsibly is really important. Yeah. 
Well, that's why I like talking to someone like yourself. And that's actually, I know in the first one that we did, you actually were talking about a similar thing where you're trying to make sure, you know, without going too far down the inbreeding path. And I remember you were saying it was almost impossible with the setup that you had at the moment or the animals that you had. And it's nice to have somebody who's actually thinking about those things. And one of the things that I thought was sort of funny in the podcast that we originally recorded, and this could be just my naivety at the time, because at at that time, I was just a person that had reptiles, and I really didn't know much about the hobby. And I think a lot has changed in three years, not just me personally, but I think like we were saying, there's been a huge adoption of welfare in the hobby in the last three years. But it was funny, one of the questions that I asked you was, what is your stance on enrichment? And I can barely say that without laughing at this point, because at that time, it was almost like um, like it was a controversial thing. Like, what do you think? Like, do they need this? Is, is enrichment necessary? And, and, but that, and, and of course, you were for enrichment, but that's where your mind was. You were, you know, back then, you, we actually had to talk about that. And that was only three years ago. No, it's, um, it's, it's, it's crazy. But that's a true thing that happens even in like that very conversation you and I had about what is it? What do you think about enrichment? I had with zookeepers back in the early 2000s in reptile right. world because they had just adopted the concepts of enriching animals' lives in the AZA world in the 90s. So, I mean, 30 years ago, and they'd been keeping reptiles and zoo or animals in zoos for 4,000 years. And the modern zoo took a huge, uh, they reinvented themselves to, from bars and concrete to the idea of conservation they use language and so we're in the same boat it's funny that like enrichment um but i think the the reptile hobby can kind of mirror or kind of follow along with how the zoo field has reinvented themselves um if you look at the history of that and so it's kind of cool that that but that same conversation that enrichment idea like and, and as we start to know more about it, we're like, yeah, you know, do you think your dog needs water? Yeah. I think <laughs> yeah so. exactly. but, That's what but, it seems like now. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. And, uh, but it, it's, but it was just a more of a lack of understanding. Yeah. I mean, on all, and on all parts and, and there's no negativity of that. We all have to learn. Don't exactly. know what you don't know until you know it. So it's and okay. So it- it's been kind of positive to see that there's been such a shift in the last three years. And so as far as the zoos go, I, I don't know how well you know about the, the history of that going from bars to complex cages, but what, what started to trigger that? Was it just people realizing that these animals are a little more sentient, a little more intelligent than we thought? Or, or how did they, what was that push from bars to, cause now you go to a zoo, everything's amazing. And I think a lot of people, that's what they think of zoos. But yeah, like you said, you go back 25, 30 years ago, zoos were just little cells almost for the animals. I think it, I think it reflected the culture. Um, Mm. uh, and so the culture of, of just humanity in general. And so in my undergrad studies, we had a couple of zoobiology courses of, I mean, history, and I can kind of recall some of it, but it used to be menageries, rich people, they'd have menageries and they were commodities, you know, and, and, and they, animals were just like flowers. You go out you snip them off. You got the animal, you know, and it, sits in a vase until it dies and withers and you go get more. Um, and that lasted way longer than should have. And not until the more modern zoo of like London zoo is in the 1800s, like 1820s when London zoo started. And it came out of the um, kind of this enlightenment period where people were wanting to research animals and learn more about zoology. Um, 
And so in that early 1800s time, they had the Zoological Society of London and others around the world where they were keeping animals in captivity specifically to just look at them, research them, and they didn't have to go off to the far off lands. Mm. And then they, in London, the guys were getting tired of writing special permissions for their families to come see the animals that they eventually went public. And that's where you got your first London Zoo public thing. And it was still way lack of understanding of biology. It's going to start to sound familiar to how we, the hobby is like yeah. lack of understanding of biology, lack of concepts for um, care, lack of technology to provide that care outside of their evolved habitats. Um, and then as it transformed, I think it was 1900s, early 1900s, this dude in Germany thought that he would use a barrierless version of captivity where you got the moats and you got mm -hmm. the, you can see him with it. And he started to add some naturalistic stuff and it was purely aesthetic and it drew people in. And so it was partially a commercialization and a, uh, getting money for patrons, not necessarily animal centric, but just ideas. And that transformed the zoo world. And then they started doing moats and you see the naturalistic stuff, but it still wasn't well for welfare oriented. And then the immersion came in in the 70s, and that was Woodland Park. I remember them getting highlighted for it. So like, it's like a Disney Animal Kingdom where the, the patron that goes to the zoo is experiencing mm. this natural thing. Like you go on your safari or San Diego Zoo Wild Animal Park kind of thing where you're on safari, but not on safari. And so that was a big deal. And that was in the 70s. And then in the 90s, they picked up the enrichment idea. For mammals 2000s they started doing it with reptiles there was some scenting going on and that was about it it was really rudimentary and then in the last decade it's really started to pick up with welfare and so they really transformed it was interesting and i see a parallel for us yeah wow that uh, is and the fascinating reptiles. and and it's, if you think about it today someone will and they use pet words like semantics matters so yeah. back in the day it was bars and cages and the animals were kept and they were keepers yes. and they were in captive. And now listen to Lori. She's perfectly example of someone who's taken a lot of AZA training. She says captive management because yes. I manage this animal in captivity, right? And, and it's not a cage. It's, and it went from cage to enclosure to display to habitat. Is the animal out on habitat? And so you captively manage a animal in, ha in habitat through conservation efforts. It sounds just like wildlife biology. And so it's, and so it makes it also harder for our our friends that are animal rights folks to say oh, it's just bars and cages yeah and it's, it's fascinating so we i think we need to adopt some terminology in the hobby yeah well that, that is it. yeah that's really interesting so i because i've had this terminology discussion before and sort of my stance on it is that and I'm, I'm not sure if you agree with this or not but the actions need to happen so we can actually call the cage a habitat right you, we can't just call rack a tub a habitat and assume that the work is done so the right. semantics plays a major role in our sort of marketing but we also have actions that really desperately need to happen so we can honestly use the semantics so we're describing what we're doing truthfully i agree and i think there's a um a cyclic part to it as mm -hmm. well because i think um obviously you, you can't just polish a turd it's still a turd yeah. But at the same time, um, words can transform and people will have at some point some kind of rub with the, uh, the, the polarization of calling a tub a habitat. And I'm like, I don't feel like that's right. 
yeah. then maybe they might, maybe they're motivated to then make it a habitat or go back to calling it a, like, I want to call a spade a spade. You know, you got to be yeah. honest. So I agree. And I think, so we get, we have to adopt some things, but we also want to start helping define what that is. Cause you can do that with breeder. You can say breeder. And if you're thinking puppy mill, then eventually that word, if you say it enough in that way, it gets equated with that. And, and that's a problem, but, or you can do it with other things. Habitat, you could, I don't want us to all call racks habitats, but you yeah. know, does that make sense? I know it totally makes sense. Now. Yeah. And I think that there, yeah, there for sure is a bit of a positive feedback loop. So the more we use those terms, the more we act that way, it'll just sort of evolve. And, and I, and I think that that's a good pl- place to bring up the term breeder, because this was something that I, I think you kind of had called us out on in, in, a, in a very nice way. Mean? And <laughs> yeah. And because I tend to use the word in my head, I separate it in two different ways. I, I use the word breeder as this somewhat of a straw man sort of caricature that I create in my head of the classic breeder that we see, the newspaper, the water dish, the I don't care about anything about any scientific discoveries that have happened since, you know, 1940, whatever. And that's in my head. And then I have someone like you who I, I call a breeder, but I don't, you're nowhere near that category in my mind, but I think you're, you're right. Maybe you could kind of run through that little, that sort of logic there. You, we're using the br- term breeder in a sort of derogatory way, which is not helpful. Right. And I, that, that, well, the, the reason I, I don't want it to, well, first it hurts my feelings and I cry at night, but yeah. <laughs> um, well, I just don't want it to be equated with puppy mill, although it is at sometimes yeah. that happens, you know, if, if, you know, in, in some circles in high school, if, if the athletes are called jocks and they're all jerks to the people, then, a, you know, a jock and an athlete are synonymous and they're both jerks. And then if you say, hi, I'm from another school and I'm an athlete, you're a jerk. Right. Yeah. So we want to avoid that association. Um, and I would love to see a way to, 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 to separate that. Cause we, we need captive breeding. Uh, if we want to have sustainable captive populations. And I think that that's pretty well understood among the hobby that um, captive propagation of animals is more ideal than just consistent and constant harvest from the wild. I think that's more sustainable. It's more ethical. It's more, certainly more ecologically minded. And so we want captive propagation, but we also don't want exploitation of the living creature for profit. And that's where the rub really comes for me. And that's why I try to drive into the small branch idea that I want. I'm trying to get small batch breeding to, to stick as a term where people see it as welfare oriented, constantly progressing in uh, care and quality over quantity. And I don't mean quality of prettiness, but I mean quality and healthiness and Mm -hmm. wellness. Um, like some of the most famous YouTubers, they, the colors are just quote paint jobs, right? Yeah. yeah. It's only skin deep. And we want to be less, uh, I want to be, I love beauty, but I also want to pay attention to the health and welfare. And I see that as also beauty and I want to see that develop. And so, um, it's hard to get the two and see them both as the same, you yes. know, but then they do that with reptile keepers, right? All reptile keepers are, the big Burmese taking it to the park and scaring kids guys, but it's not, you know, it's not all of them. There's some responsible, large constrictor keepers and there's irresponsible and everything. 
So it's yeah. hard. Yeah. So it'll just become a, you know, hopefully the weight can shift towards the, the responsible keepers that can be sort of stewards of the hobby. And I, I think, so I don't know if you listened to the podcast I did with Eric Burke a couple of weeks ago or like last month or something. And I asked him a question that when I re-listened to it, when I was editing it, I was unhappy with the question I asked because the question I asked was not the question I was meaning to ask. So I'm going to rephrase it now. I'm going to give myself the opportunity because I think this is a perfect time to talk about it. The question I basically said was, should breeders make money? Or I said something like that. And and what I actually meant was, and this goes along with the small batch breeders, is should, should the majority of reptile breeders be people who use it as a, well, for one, a hobby, but also it's maybe a side income rather than their, their full source of income. Because to me, it seems like if it is everything, you're, everything relies on your breeding operation, that's when shortcuts have to make, you have to make them. And I, and I don't even feel bad. I don't, I don't question that because you're trying to feed your family. You want to make sure that the bills are paid. I understand that. So my question to him, which I should have asked, was more so should this be reserved for people who are using it as a side income, side business type situation? So I wonder what you think about that. Yeah, absolutely. In fact, um, uh, I've been asked many times, why don't you go full time? There seems to be a market. You seem to have an audience that wants to buy your animals. Why don't you just go full time? And the reason I give every time is because at any time when it comes to my animals or my children, my one, my kid, and I don't see them as the same thing. Mm -hmm. Um, it will be my child, my son, every time, a hundred percent, no matter what. And, and, and therefore I will be setting myself up for a conflict of interest. And so, no, I, I do not think that we're ready. I think it can be done. I definitely think it can be done, but the foundation of welfare standards and welfare observation isn't there enough for us to then later build upon it a commercialized full-time job. So if it was a matter of fact, like does a dog need water kind of blatantly obvious for enrichment, welfare, all of the things and growth in that, because it's not just a horizontal line that you hit for welfare, it's a vertical line of never stopping to grow. Yeah. And um, anyone who goes through education and gets their PhD and then they're like, that's great, I never have to read again, wrong. Never have to write a paper again, wrong. If you yeah. wanna be, that's uh, you just started. Now you just got done starting. So this is same with reptile care. Um, so if we had had that foundation of automatic, then maybe we can build upon that and commercialization could come. And it could look a lot different. I think animals would be a lot higher priced because of the cost of everything that's built on that foundation. Um, unfortunately, some animals, then it would might put it into a more elite category for people. But, uh, you know, you don't usually see Ferraris junked up. Yeah. They're usually exactly. well cared for. Um, and so that's interesting. It's just a dynamic. But so, no, I think it would be best personally. And this is, just a thought that most people would do better in the community would be served better if it was bifurcational, if they yeah. had a part-time gig and did this on the side um, or a full-time gig like I do, and then do this on the side. Um, Cause should you have payment for your work? Yeah, I, exactly. absolutely. You should, I mean, I bust my butt 
to produce these animals. And I wouldn't have every one of these animals if I wasn't producing them for others. I would have far fewer numbers just if it was a keeping situation. So yeah, but I'm not sure commercialization yet is ready. I think we need welfare foundations before we go anywhere. Yeah. And I, I think I that know. is so true. Like, uh, and because, and that, that's where I, I kind of messed up on that question is I didn't want people to think that breeders shouldn't make money. Cause that's, I, I am very much about of the belief that people should get paid for their time and the expense that they incur to do this. So, and I, but I think that is, that is so true. And, you know, something that you had highlighted in another discussion that we had privately was the supply and demand issue. And that's kind of what we're sort of getting into touch here. So could, could you run through that? If you, I don't, you don't have to go through the exact numbers yeah. if you don't remember them, but it was, yeah, yeah go ahead. Yeah. So, well, it was a, like a 10 year old, 10 year old study. Now, um, us Ark had commissioned a, a thing out of Georgetown and you can find it, I think on their website and I'm really glad they did it, but they kind of just looked at what the reptile hobby is. Like, what do we got in the United States? In the U S there was at the time about four, 4.7 ish million households with reptiles. And then they estimated about 10 to 12,000 breeders. Maybe a handful of those were mega commercial breeders. Those are the ones that are going to supply your Petcos and Pet Smarts with all your little corn snakes and bearded dragons and things like that. And then you had your suppliers that were importing mass animals from around the, of the globe. And but 10 to 12,000 out of the 4.7 million keeping reptiles, that's a way tiny proportion. And then if you were to even just quadruple that at four times, you're still at 1% supplying the 99%. Okay. And so that's relatively interesting. So that kind of allowed for the Rackham and Stackham idea because there was space to expand and, and you could continually sell. Now there's some markets that are getting saturated, of course, um, in certain species and they're being overproduced and things. It's very interesting to me that to see that there's just this small pocket of people producing a large amount of all the captive animals that are being supplied to this hobby. And if you think about it today, we need a population of reptiles. Like we need it. I mean, no one needs it, but if the hobby is to stay as it is the status quo, where you have a veterinarian, maybe relatively accessible and new people in the pipeline, learning reptiles and exotics, well, they need to be able to sustain their business. And you, so you need a population of reptiles in the community that's large enough that some population of it will get sick, even though we don't want that. Nobody wants that, but living creatures get sick. That's why even the world's best zoos have vets on staff. Yeah. Injuries happen. So you need that, but you need a population that can sustain the vet so they can feed their family and they can do their thing and pay for their massive education bills, poor folks. And so we need that. We want if you're going to have manufacturers that are going to make the next super dupers so we can advance in our technology to increase our welfare, well, they need to have enough sales that they can invest in research and development, which means that they need enough people to buy their stuff to be able to do that. And people don't buy reptile stuff unless they got reptiles. Mm -hmm. And so we've got two choices. We have captive breeders or we catch them from the wild. And I would prefer, and I think most people would say captive breeding is more probable, uh, positive. And so we need a population. We need suppliers. We need that animal production. And so if we try to, you know, switch everybody from Rackham and Stackhams to small batch or even just micro batch, where it's just mom and pop breeding a pair of animals, 
in order to do that, first, we need to be able to have people keeping well. And we need before they ever try to attempt breeding well. I mean, yeah, you can start right off the bat, but really hone on, on hone in on that care. Be sure you got good, healthy, solid skills before you go off and add more to it and try and teach others. And, <clears throat> and then we need, <clears throat> excuse me, we need the other breeders that have the rackums and stackums. They're going to have to reduce their size of their population. Like I had to. And in order to do that, they have to spread out if we're going to sustain the same amount of experience that we have now. Otherwise, we could lose an 80, like it could go down to 80% less animals. And that's potentially 80% less veterinarians out there, 80% less supplies, 80% less research and development. If we're trying to just snap our fingers and expect the same number of people to produce less animals in that massive warehouses and then the price just goes through the roof and it prices us out. So it's a really interesting market to picture um, how that dynamic works. Cause we can't just snap our fingers and everyone's doing awesome. Um, it's a hard thing. To, it's a yeah. hard sell too. Things, hard things, sell. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely a hard sell and things are very much connected. And, and I think that's exactly right is, you know, we have to, we can't just yeah, snap our fingers and make things change. So in, you know, in a, very real way, we actually need more breeders. We need more hobbyists that are, you know, willing to take on a couple different species and produce more in their communities and supply their communities locally. And like you had kind of touched on, is there are a few species that are being overproduced, and obviously ball pythons are sort of the poster child for that. And I personally don't, I don't buy that everybody's this obsessed with ball pythons. Maybe ball python keepers might be a little bit offended by that, but I do truly think that we have some great people who are working with ball pythons that could work with another species and we could not be adding to this rescue issue that I've seen rescues basically are turning away ball pythons at this point because there's so many of them. I just don't buy that everybody's that obsessed with that species. They're a neat species for sure, but how can we all be on that one ship heading to ball python land? It's very weird. And I think we could actually transition some of those people to work with different species. They already have a breeding skill set and we can start working away at this welfare issue. Yeah. I mean, there are so many animals that are right now just still being solely imported, mm -hmm. even in, the, even in the skink world. And the, the uh, Indonesian species are definitely not well-established captive bred. And I mean, there's a couple types that are not even produced, haven't been captive bred in the United States yet. Um, cause we just can't figure out the husbandry and it's unfortunate because usually it's only when a country stops exportation from the wild, does the pressure then come be put on to figure it out. And then the motivation comes, I would love to see, I mean, I would love to see a ball Python breeder still do amazing, pretty ball pythons, but maybe cut down a couple animals and pick up figuring out how to breed Halmahara blue tongue and read those in captivity and man would they be uh highlighted and i'd give them a high five in yeah. fact y'all y'all do that and i'll give you a 100 bucks i'm saying right now you, there we go you have to prove it <laughs> yeah okay that's official let's do it it's official yeah first one first one i can't yeah. get it <laughs> yeah yeah let's, all of a sudden you got your inbox ten thousand people <laughs> sending you pictures but right. it you know it, it it is true and i think we have the potential there to, to start tinkering with these other species and and you can be 
we don't need a whole bunch of people producing the same species. So you could be that guy, right? And that was one of the things that Eric Burke had said to me is, you know, you could be the guy that works with this species and people know you across, you know, a few states or across half the country or the whole country that works with this species. And there could be a whole bunch of potential there for you to have success as a breeder and, and be the, the expert. And then who knows what you're going to learn about that species. If people aren't really captively producing it now, you will be a wealth of information for, for that species. Exactly. Exactly. I, I kind of feel like it's like one of the things that happened for me is like I had a group of animals and I picked skinks and I said, I'm going to focus on skinks. I still did everything else, but I highlighted skinks in my YouTube and it, and it grew and I'm not like the guy, but I am a, a one of them, one of the people that breed skinks and, and at least one person has asked me questions. So that's a start, right? Yeah. And so you could do, anyone can pick something and really do well with it. For, and first practice being really good at keeping first. Yeah. Because that's what is, is crucial. I, I, it's scary when someone steps into, hi, this is my first pair of reptiles. I've never had them before. Can you tell me how to breed them? I'm like, yeah. uh, yeah. how about, how about we learn how to care for them first? Yeah. Let's dial it back <laughs> a bit. Yeah. Yeah. There's lots of time. There's yeah. lots of time. Well, and I think that is that is a morph market phenomenon because you know is a you know I always compare us to fish, but as a fish keeper, you don't just jump into breeding right away. It's just not something that's that interesting to you because you want to keep them, you want to wash them, swim around. You don't want to be you know dealing with a fry and all this, but that's sort of the precedent that gets set where you can go to your show, you can pick up your few animals, and you can have your rack, and you can start a little nice breeding operation and. I think there is an opportunity out there. You know, everybody wants to become a YouTuber at this point. If you, if somebody took one of those common species, you know, one of the colubrids or the ball pythons that are commonly bred in these you know, relatively unenriched settings, you could have a channel that's dedicated towards super high welfare, large enclosures, properly established habitats, and then fold a breeding operation on top of that and show people that it can be done. So this is another call. I'm not going to give you a hundred bucks if you do it, but <laughs> I, I think that somebody could do that. Somebody could make a channel that's dedicated towards showing that those species can be reproduced in those settings successfully. And then maybe we'll start steering that ship because I mean, we have a few big YouTubers that aren't doing that. And that's sort of, they're sort of guiding the way for a lot of people. And I think that's where we've kind of hit the ditch in a way. Yeah, I absolutely agree that <laughs> these these YouTube's a, a wealth of opportunity, and it's you as you and I know is a pain in the butt to start, and yes. it's a lot of work. But if you just keep your nose down and push through, um, and you're faithful to working through it, you're gonna your, your chances are high you're gonna be successful. Mm -hmm. um, the only way you're gonna fail really is to quit or not do it. And I think a young or old person that wants to be involved, it doesn't matter. You can be old. There's no age limit. <laughs> yeah, a new yeah. person can come in and do the, the YouTube thing and, and build a channel on that specialty. I think right now, and the trend, if you're looking at zoos, right? You know, not a zoo, not a zoo, uh, what do we call them? Director, not a director of a zoo is going to sit down in front of all his curators and say, I got this great new idea. Get ready for it. Here it comes concrete and bars, <laughs> yeah. you know, like yeah. not a single one. There, there ain't no going back. No. Right. It, like, it, it's out of the box. The worms are everywhere. Welfare is the way forward. And so you hop on that wagon and be one of the founding people 
you're probably going to have a massive opportunity because you're kind of getting into the ground floor, even though welfare has been a thing for a while, it's really not a huge thing yet in, yeah. in our hobby. It's more so in zoos and it's trickling into us. And then you could be on the ground floor of a, a next uh, movement and then you're a superstar. I mean, if yeah. that's what you're looking for. Yeah. Um, you want to be the pet tuber. You might, right. But you might just enjoy knowing that you're doing well with your animals. Exactly. And, and that's huge. It's yeah. huge. Well, yeah, it is. It is fascinating. I've never had, and I've said this before, I've never had anyone contact me and say, hey, I'm really upset that I made a larger enclosure and added all these extra layers of enrichment. And I've never, I, I've had the exact opposite hundreds of times where people are like, yeah, I listened to the show. It sort of motivated me to change my lighting or add some more climbing branches. And I'm just like shocked at what I'm seeing from the animal. I can't believe how much more behavior I'm getting out of them, how more in, much more interesting they are. That's the response that we always get. And including myself, when I make a change, you start seeing those behaviors and that's where the excitement comes from. So like you said, there's no going back. We're not going back to bars and cages. Nobody in the zoo would ever do that because we already know the potential of the welfare. You can't, you can't make the jump back. It would just be, I don't even know how you would have to be a psychopath. Right. And, and the thing you, you also don't see, like it's technologies don't reverse. It's not like during the Super Bowl they were airing a, an ad for covered wagons and horse-drawn <laughs> exactly. carriages. Yeah. They were, <laughs> nobody's like, Hey, I really want that. I mean, even if it was with padded seats and GPS, it's <laughs> yeah. still not the best method. And so it's a method that works, tried and true, you know, yeah. but not preferred. The same thing here. And, and, and it's what I, I, and it's, I think we mimic that diffusion of innovation, which Eric, the sociologist Rogers in the 60s came up with. And it's like a bell curve for those that, are you familiar with it? I'm sure you are. The bell curve? Yeah. 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 So it basically, so Eric Rogers talks about that diffusion of innovation where there's the innovators. And that's a small percentage of people that are committed to, to new. And that's the people that are going to camp out for the next iPhone or the next Apple Watch, right? They're outside the store in their tent because it's new and they want it, right? Then there's the um, uh, early adopters. That's the people that are like, all right, y'all can camp out. Once they restock, that's when I'll buy. Yeah. And then there's the next group that's uh, called early majority. And that's the bigger as the bell comes. That's the people that are like, okay, I'll take a generation two. I'll, I won't get generation one, but I'll pick up generation two. The other people are like, all right, this is the late majority. And they're like, all right, most everyone's got this thing. I better get me a watch. You know, and then the last ones are like, I want analog. Yeah. The, the laggards. And they're like, no, because and, and it's based on their own personality, character traits of innovation, of uh, risk aversity, change. Um, and the laggards are like, my analog has worked forever. I'm sticking with my analog. There's no need to change my analog. And you can see that in the reptile community. You see that with people that are like, I got the next greatest thing. And we're like, well, we don't know if it's greatest yet. It's just the next thing. But yeah, they're yeah. like, oh, it's great. And then there's the next, and then we see, and and so it's really interesting to see that happening. And so I'm curious how, and of course the innovators get frustrated with the laggards, but if we paid a little more close attention to just the, the step behind us, I think we'd be a little healthier as a community. Mm. Yes. Because the, the innovator could motivate the early adopter and see a lot more movement. And then like you were saying, you were, and that's, we don't want to silo, but we want to expand just past. You don't want to go out too far 
You know, you want to be able to go to the people you can relate to just enough. And then if everyone does that, it continuum can really help. Cause that's like you said, people that are contacting you are like, this is awesome. Yeah. This is thrilled. They're probably not laggards. Chances are laggards weren't the ones, the laggards are the ones that are going to argue against what you're trying to say. Yeah. Um, but if the late majority start talking to the laggards, the laggards might catch on. They might, you might go, Hey, you do realize that, you know, you've made it this far for 30 years with racks. How much longer do you think this is really going to go? Have yeah. you seen the movement? Have you seen the zoo world? Have you seen the rest of the, the, the political landscape right now? How long do you really think you're going to be able to toot your horn and scream rights and do it this way? Chances are you need to start moving towards better welfare or you're going to be left in the dust. Yes. Yeah, it's it's so true, and I think the laggards they exist on Facebook. Those are where I run into them anyway, and that's where you kind of get into those arguments, and you do sort of end up just getting frustrated with it. And and I I do get annoyed at the rights the rights stance. I understand rights. <laughs> it's great that we have freedoms, rights, and freedoms. And in the United States, you guys have, even have a better system for rights and freedoms than we have in Canada. But you you don't get to stand on the rights hill if you're in a society where you're sharing the society with other people. Like, you know, the example that I always use is I, I assume you hope that the fire department and the police officers just don't choose their right to not come to your house when you call them. You hope that they follow through with the responsibility. You hope the power company continues to follow through with the responsibility. So unless you live in a small house in the middle of the woods where you're not connected to this grid at all, then I think, yeah, you have the right to do whatever you want. But you're in a society where there is some give and take and you have to move with the system because you are using the system in a way. Not in a way, you are using the system. And, and that's okay. That's what society is good. That's what humans are great for, building societies around us that have a deep structure where we can get things done together so we're not out on our own but you don't get to just say oh i can just do whatever i want because yeah technically it's true but you also take advantage of a bunch of other people who aren't doing that right and and rights still have consequences exactly i mean i probably have the right to jump out of a plane without a parachute <laughs> yeah not necessarily going to be the best consequences towards the bottom um and You'll so have we low have welfare to- at the bottom Yes, very low, about an inch thick. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but um, we we have to acknowledge that rights have consequences and they have responsibilities. You know, with anything that with great response with great power comes great responsibility. And when you have that a power of the the right or this freedom, um, you you really have to pay attention to what you what you're doing. And, and to, to respect your right, not just be a, God, am I going to quote JFK? It's not what you can do for your country, but what, or what the country does for you, but what you can do for your country, right? It's yeah. like, literally, it's not just about you and what you get from your rights, but it's also part of what you're giving back as that responsibility. Yes. And yeah. it's like, so you don't just have kids to serve you beer and bring your slippers. Exactly. Well, most, most people shouldn't. Yeah, some people do that, but yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I think I don't know if you watched. Uh, I think you watched the when I was on Triple B TV with Brian Cusco, yeah. and when I went into that, I was actually like pretty nervous because I wasn't sure if I was walking into like the belly of the beast type situation. Because obviously, you know, he's a breeder, he's a rack system. If you'd watch any of my stuff, he'd know that I'm not necessarily for that, and I assume that most of his audience would be the same. But 
A, it was an incredibly positive experience. We had an awesome conversation, but even more positive was the was the off-air bit what I with his patrons. It was like a 30-minute Zoom call, and it's a bunch of breeders, and maybe some of them are even listening to it now. They're not all breeders, but a lot of them are rack breeders. And they completely crushed that straw man caricature that I've built up in my brain over the last two years of this like you know breeder who refuses to accept any new information. Those are the people that I run into on Facebook, but real people, when you actually talk to them, they were so open-minded. They were interested in what I had to say. They had amazing questions, and they were all for pushing the welfare forward. Yes, they like the racks, the racks work for them, but I don't think you could have found one that would have been opposed to adding, you know, a branch or some leaf litter or something for the animal to investigate. And it was it it was one of those moments where I, I left and I was like, wow, there is a whole you know, that stubborn population is somebody that it's such a small percentage that I don't even have to worry about. Most people are just wanting to do more. And if they, if you teach them that there's, you know, this benefit from problem solving, they're going to start incorporating that in, in their animals. And are they going to go throw out their racks tomorrow? Probably not. But are they going to advance? Yes. And it was a really a sort of heartwarming experience for me. That's awesome. And I'm not surprised that you had a good experience with Brian. He seems mm-hmm. to be a really genuine person uh, mm-hmm. and, a, and a good character. So even a tough topic can be, safe with yes that, exactly with so and you as well so I, I was not surprised that it went well but i loved watching that and it's good to hear that i know i think there is a ton of people out there that are that are hungry for it but there may not be a platform yet uh or we we're showing them you know if i were to tell my son what phd work looks like and he's in first grade <laughs> he might not be interested in going to second grade because you're like, yes. whoa, yeah. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. Thanks, dad. I don't want to read that. That's boring. So we, we kind of almost need to help people with baby steps. Um, the, the idea, like I said, it's not just a, a, some level you hit. Well, I've got UV, so now I'm the best in, in the market. Um, no, it's about constantly progressing and the speed of progression may not be as important as the commitment to progression. Mm -hmm. Yes. I think that's incredibly important. And then the understanding and celebrating of little accomplishments. It's, it's, it would be totally wrong for a high school graduate to mock a kindergarten graduate for not being a high school graduate. That's just wrong. And nobody does that. Everyone understands that there's, levels and you celebrate we celebrated when my kiddo graduated kindergarten we celebrated via zoom thank you pandemic but you <laughs> yeah. know he, he got his little suit on and then he had shorts and he did his shorts <laughs> thing he did the whole the thing but that's awesome yeah i was proud of him but we celebrated the, is he ready for high school no does he know that yeah but i need to point it out I don't need to rub it down its nose. He's ready for second, first grade. And now he's in first grade. He's ready for second. I think we need to have some okay culture and a culture of growth and being okay with that in the community. Someone will put out a video or, a, you know, say on Facebook, they'll say, how's my enclosure look? And it's pretty good, but it may not be, you know, top of the line. And a lot of people that are have never seen that level will be like, wow, that's amazing. Then other people that are snooty will go, well, that doesn't have dirt or dirt or dirt. And you're like, okay, Bob, you're the high school graduate condemning the kindergartner. Let's foster yeah. some encouragement here. Cause it's okay. As long as there's a commitment to growth and there's patience, I think we can have a really solid um, hope for a lot of people in the community. 
Yeah. Are you familiar with Jocko Willink? Hmm. He, he's a, like a former Navy SEAL commander. He has a podcast. He's sort of a very big, intimidating guy, but he's, he does a lot on leadership. And, you know, he, so he was in Iraq, I think. And uh, so, you know, he has all these stories from leading people into battle and whatnot. And one of the things about being a leader that he talks about is you don't give everybody below you all the information because it's just too much. And, and they don't need to know all the information. They need to know what their job is and maybe how it, it correlates with the overall plan. But they don't need to have the giant binder of the entire mission in their head. That's for you, the leader. And I'm not co- comparing ourselves to Jocko, but I'm just saying how, how you how you dis- distribute information to the people who are following is really critical. Like it's the exact example like you, that you're using with your son. You can't just give the whole binder over and expect them to be able to go through it. That's a mission fail right there. If you want to go in and out of this mission successfully and not lose any men, it has to be done in a way where everybody has an extreme important part to play and it all fits together. And I think that's sometimes where even sometimes I go wrong because you see it on Facebook and you get frustrated and you want to say something, but no, that's not how you get things accomplished. Exactly. I absolutely. I I don't I haven't done a lot with seals. I worked with the Green Berets, and you know right. they we we razz each other. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. this is like the yeah. enemy, <laughs> the enemy yeah. within the good guys, the frog boys. Um, but yeah, we um, it is important to, to to have that patience and and to you know you want information out there, but you don't have to drink from the fire hose. You don't yes. have to to force it down someone's throat, um, and celebrating accomplishments is huge, and, and positive in yes. reinforcement is massive. I mean, look at training, right? You give your dog a, a bone as opposed to a newspaper on the nose, the dog's more motivated to be collaborative with you, and it's the same thing with people. Um, you, you foster positivity with them. And I don't mean blowing sunshine up their rear, but genuine positivity. You're going to build uh, a following essentially. Mm-hmm. And and maybe not of you, but of maybe the ideas. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it can be hard to do that because I think as humans, we immediately see the negative in things and it's sort of what we're genetically or, or evolutionarily designed to see. Like this is the bad stuff. we got to stay away from that. And it, it can be hard to constantly be giving people that positive reinforcement but as a swim coach i have to do that all the time it's you want if if someone if a swimmer did something well if you tell them they did well they're going to continue to do that thing for the rest of practice without doubt because they're watching you to see if they're going to you know get another good job buddy so it, it is it's so true and i think that the animosity and the negativity that gets boiled up on facebook i'm actually pulling myself back from facebook almost entirely at this point because i just i don't get anything out of it i feel like sometimes i'll blow a whole day and i think there's some great things happening there but for me personally like it just doesn't seem like a very effective way to communicate and and i mean for some people i think they're better with writing and whatnot but that's where conversations like this will be so powerful i think and that's exactly why unfortunately i you know pulled out of facebook groups as well most of them um and it, and it has nothing to do with the vast majority. It's just that um, it's exhausting. And I think part of the, the problem is it's the innovators trying to take on the the larger, maybe the late adopters, you know, the yes, late majority. That's exactly what it is. And and so <laughs> would be great if the other side of that that's just closer would be a little more engaging and it would be helpful. So it and it's that again, it's that ninety-nine percent and that one percent. Um and it exhausts a lot of the folks that I learned that being on, on YouTube pretty quickly, 
it didn't take long before I was getting 900, a thousand messages a month. And at 30 seconds, a message, I'm doing a lot of work mm-hmm. and I'm doing a lot of work for people that may or may not have decided to even bother and kind of want to be spoon fed sometimes. And then, yes. and as it's our culture, you don't, but again, you, you want to start really being mad at them and they're not bad people. They're, they're just a product of, of our world, you know, the now. And so, but, but then again, it still affects me. And so if we got more people, again, more small batch readers after they've done well to spread out that 1% and mm-hmm. reduce the volume of that 1% and spread that volume across more people, we could have more people engaging. I, I mean, if you could imagine if every, every zoo in the world was calling up San Diego on how to's, the San Diego people would be burned out pretty quick. Exactly. So diversifying that is pretty important. And I think we need to do that too. Not that I'm saying that we're San Diego zoo, <laughs> but <laughs> no, no but, I think you're right. I think people could, what you could do is you could just go look for a species that completely fascinates you and then check. Is there, is there an opera? Like if, that would be a place where you, if you have the experience, you could bring in wild caught animals, you can get the imports. And I, I would, you know, ethically I'm okay with that. If, if you're, if this is your plan to establish a captive a captive colony here to, to use. So mm-hmm. go and look, find a species that when you look at, you just can't believe how fascinating it is. And then you look at its behavior and it makes it even better. And the, the habitat that they would live in is something that you would love to build and then become that person that works with that species. And I, I think that is just such a great message to share. I think we, we want to celebrate small batch as much as possible. Cause I think, it, and I said this in that one solo podcast I did where we're talking sort of, giving an audit on the rack system at the end of that podcast i say i think the small batch people have the most opportunity here and i still 100 percent agree with that because the, we've already mentioned the bottom line isn't the first concern you have some wiggle room that doesn't mean that eventually you you won't get paid and make some money that, that's great but you have the opportunity to tinker more than a big you know ten thousand head operation and yeah go go pick an animal that that you can introduce to the hobby Absolutely. You have, there's so many species out there as well, and they're amazing. And, and if you ever, there's a group rare and uncommon reptiles on yeah. Facebook and, and people are posting things all the time. And I'm just like, ah, oh, oh, that's awesome. Yeah. I want like, that. I don't even know what that, that is. Yeah. I don't even know what that is, but I want four, you yeah. know? And, and, um, you know, then the other side of me goes, no TZ, no go yeah. play with your reptiles. And then I go yeah. down and take care of mine. But it's totally true. Someone and small batch has so much more freedom and, and, and it's more than just hobby breeding where you're just doing, but that's why I was kind of micro batch. And like, I'm trying to clarify terminology. Small batch is still commercial, but small. And there's so much more freedom in that because one, you, you do get a little bit of money if you're successful with the animals and do good business sense and, and you do well there you can get some money. It's not, you know, I'm not swimming in the cash, but I was able to go to dinner thanks to the animals. Yeah. And so that's cool. Um, and y- you have this freedom to do well and still get engaged and you're still getting all the kind of the good ticks of, of the big breeders that they get, at, but with even more because there's mm-hmm. so much more rewarding and re- enriching. And then you start to, get engaged with customers that are um, also committed to progression and ethical welfare. Like my customer base 
has really started to be a different customer base. And they still have amazing, awesome people that are wanting their first time pet. Um, but it's starting to transform into a different group of people. And, and it's interesting. It's very fascinating. Yeah, this is that, that point that I think we're at now where people, because the, the common argument for the very plain sterile setups is that the animals are cheap and you know no one's going to spend more money on an animal that's gone through a, 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 more, a higher standard of welfare for the breeders. And I, I think we could look to other pet markets and sort of disagree with that. I mean, like look at dogs, for example. People don't go to puppy mills and buy dogs anymore. You would much rather spend triple. Like dogs are not cheap. You could buy a, a purebred dog. It's going to be like two or $3,000. And people would rather do that than risk going to a puppy mill where you don't know the welfare of the breeders. It has nothing to do with the puppy that you're getting because the puppy's going home to you and has everything to do with the mother and the father dog that you just don't feel right about taking from that you know supporting that industry and i think that that's what will happen with the reptile world as well well people will share the breeding operation and that'll be part of the package like this is the father and the mother the animal this is the conditions that they're in and people will want to support that now that's just a speculation and i think many people disagree with that that's never going to happen but i personally think it, it will I think it absolutely does to some people. And I think that that group of people that, that want the whole package is growing. And I, I know that from my own reptile experience, because there are, I mean, you can go to a pet shop and get a skink uh, yeah. and it has no, no, you just know that that's where I bought it. And that's all you know about it. And there are people that will go buy that and do that. There are other people that won't do that. And they want to know that. They want to know more. And so that's why I've been compiling lineages. And there's other breeders. I'm not one of the only ones that does that. There's many that do lineages. And I got animals I can trace back seven generations on both mm -hmm. sides, mom and father. And that's provided on my website for anyone who buys an animal. So now they only, not only do they get the animal, but they have a solid background. And they also know how the animal's parents were cared for. And um, that's a package that I'm trying to sell more than the animal. You know, if, if, if UVB people were able to sell an invisible light for a long time without any way of measuring it, I can certainly sell a lizard with an added uh, element that's a tangible thing. Yes. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so um, I definitely believe that there's people with that. And so like I I'm thrilled. I have I have amazing customers, everyone from, you know, someone who just a person loving reptiles or interested in their first reptile, but really care about animals and want that ethic all the way up to directors of zoos that mm. have been repeat customers, which is humbling. It's all get out. But and are, are those cool. animals going to the zoos or to those directors homes that are just reptile they're, fanatics? They're, they're pets. Oh, yeah. Cool. The director awesome. of the zoo took it, bought two blue tongues and then oh, uh, awesome. wildlife biologists and, um, and veterinarians and and so it's it and great people of other professions it's not just those professions that ha you don't have to have a animal related profession to be a, a totally into animal welfare and and, and ethics and well, so and the really cool thing the, the amazing thing about that is people can you know your customer can look at your setup and say, okay, that's what they're in. And then in their mind, if they're a first-time owner, they're gonna that's the framework they're going to use to go home and create their habitat for their new animal. They're not going to see the plain rack and, and, and then have that as a starting point. They're going to see, wow, okay, so TC had the lighting. He had the big tub with tons of space. 
halogen, you know, fake plants, all the stuff to dig in, all this different stuff. And that's what they're going to take home with them as part of that framework to build the habitat. And that, that is so important. And, and that is one of the frustrating things, especially when you have the industrial breeders sort of promoting the plain care as all they need. But then also just visually, the customers seeing it, that's where they start at. So I think having the breeders in a much higher welfare state is just automatically going to trickle down, even if you didn't say anything. Right. And I mean, that's the same in like good quality pet shops because there are good pet shops Mm -hmm. and there are some that aren't, but there are good ones. And they, when they put an animal on display appropriately, um, people automatically with that subconsciously download that information as this is what right looks like, or this is what standard is. So I can emulate that. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I fully agree. And so, um, and I still want to improve. I've got I have to downsize again, obviously, to upgrade the size of my enclosures. I got some big plans, so hopefully the skinks breed for me, so I can afford it. But, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's it's very important for people to see that. And I originally, when I first started, I didn't want to tip the boat too much or rock the boat. And so when I started putting out my care, I was still hovering towards that very basic, minimal, long-term folklorish stuff, um, and it worked but it was more covered wagon and I'm trying to start putting in my care guides and things. I've really upgraded those to, to, to elevate that standard. And, and on all my care guides, I'm, I, I point out that it's absolutely uh, important that you're continually growing in your animal skills and care with the species you have it getting to be a better keeper is not about adding a new species. It's about exactly. getting better at what you got. And then you can add new species. And so, yeah. Were were you worried at, you know, in those early days that you would provide too much information on the care sheets for people to get overwhelmed and then just kind of like go down to the skeleton and think, well, I just going to give it water and, and some dog food and it should be good. Because that, that's kind of what I wonder as well. Like if I was to write a care guide, my, that would be my fears that you want to provide them with everything, but you don't want to intimidate them. Yeah. Um, and honestly, I, I'm not an expert at understanding how a care guide is conveyed from people you know how people right. receive it because communication is two ways right you put it out there and then there's the receiving side and so you kind of want to put it out there in a way like you just said that it's well received but i didn't know how they would receive it in the first place so i had no idea so i kind of just based it off what i'd seen um, from other care guides um like what was important hit the topics and then um but I, you know obviously my care guide is not even close to what really could be known i, I mean i could write a, i could write a book if, not that anyone would buy it or read it but i could do it um about all the things that i'm thinking about when i'm doing something you, you know there's so much to it and there's so many layers but i'm putting highlights on my care guide and i have mine's probably too long but who knows i mean my whole channel is built around their care and i talk a lot so as some what? of my comments have said yeah, and you have you have a huge amount of video that people can go through, and if they want to digest it that way, that's that's good too. So I think we'll we'll start to wrap up, but I want to touch on the YouTube channel because that, that was some of the questions I had from the Patreons or, or patrons is where is TC's videos? So I, 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 is, is what's your plan with your channel? Is your channel just on a hiatus right now? Do you have some future to bring in some videos, or maybe you could chat a bit about that? Absolutely, I have at least eleven in the works. I still have some from Australia that I haven't edited. I discovered over time that it turns out I love having YouTube videos and I love interacting with people, but I hate making the YouTube video. Yeah. 
And that makes it really complicated to be on YouTube. And so I have to find a way through that discomfort. Uh, And it's not just the hard work. The hard work's fine. I can do hard work. I can do strong back, weak mind, like nobody's business. But the issue of just getting through that. So yes, I have 11 videos, at least in preparation. Uh, My very next one coming out is going to be on enrichment for blue tongues. We're going to kind of break down why we have enrichment and then kind of the five uh, areas of enrichment that uh, we can target um, specifically with some examples with blue tongues. And then, um, but I took a hiatus. I had to, I had to, the the pandemic sucks and I work in healthcare. Mm -hmm. So it sucks times 12. And, And so that year was a little rough. And then I had some personal things go on too. So it was just like, and check please. I'll just yeah. take a moment. I'm leaving. And so I just needed, I needed a break. I hate not seeing new videos of mine up. I hate not having them up. It's just getting over that hill and making the doggone things. Yeah. Well, I editing, think everybody editing. Yeah, it is. It is a so much work. I mean, I think everybody can respect you taking a break. You've been on YouTube for so long and you've made tons of videos. So it's good to, to take a step back, but yeah, it is a tremendous amount of work just filming and editing really can suck the life out of you sometimes like sometimes you just want to do a project and not have to film it because filming it takes twice as long if you're you know explaining things and it's sometimes nice to just be able to be part of the herpetoculture without having to be a documentarian at the same time i yes i just wanted to to love on my animals and i don't mean snuggle them but i mean take care of them well and uh and live and breathe i needed that time i needed that and i needed to focus on my my family for a little while too. So yeah, uh, we're, we're coming back. Don't, don't, don't fret. I'm not forever gone for sure. 2021 well, it's going to happen. We are definitely looking forward to seeing those <laughs> videos. I can't wait to see uh, the first one drop and I'm sure everybody else will be excited as well. So is, is there anything else that we didn't cover today? We covered quite a lot. Is there anything else that you wanted to say before we wrapped up? No, I just really love watching your channel and the podcast. I'm thrilled to see how far it's, it's grown. And I just, I love the content. I think it was genius that you have other people talk for you. I mean, no, <laughs> genius. It was, it was part of the plan, man. That's part of the oh, plan. Oh, man. Oh, I wish yeah. I had thought of that. But um, <laughs> I really I, I, love your stuff. Oh, so. thank you. I, I really do appreciate that. And I, I remember that moment back in like the summer of 2018. I was like, I kind of ran out of stuff to talk about. Like, I just don't feel like I'm, I, I have enough information to continue talking. And I thought, you know what? bring people on, ask questions. That's a, that's a way to have a fountain of youth of, of content. Yeah. I was like, Phew. yeah, beautiful genius. Well, Mind TC, blown. thank you so much. This was a really, this, this conversation just flowed perfectly. And I, I know people will really love this. This is, I'm so happy we had you back. This is episode number 86. So you're episode number three and number 86, and we'll absolutely have you back on again. And I, I know you've already mentioned the website and everything, but for those of you that didn't catch it, can you let everybody know where they can find you online on social media as well? Yeah, um, if you go to reptilemountain.com, that's my main page. You can also be linked to reptilemountain.tv on YouTube um, through the website. And then I also am on Instagram as Reptile Mountain and uh, Facebook as Reptile Mountain. Perfect. So you well, can catch me there. And that will all be in the show notes, everybody. So thank you so much, TC. This was an absolute pleasure to have you on again. Thanks, Dylan. I appreciate it, man. 
All right, that is the end of that episode. TC, thank you so much for joining me yet again and having just a wonderful conversation with me. Again, I can't thank you enough just for participating in that first podcast and agreeing to come on the show. I know I've said this a million times already in this podcast, but I really can't say it enough because as I said, there's a good chance that had that not happened, the podcast wouldn't have existed. And now we're almost three years later and the podcast is growing and it's just going amazing. And I do really see that you played a large role in that and getting the ball rolling in the right way. So thank you so much. Listeners, thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed that episode. What do you think of this concept of small batch breeding? Like I said, there's some opportunities weaved into that conversation for those of you who would like to either A, start a breeding breeding project or B, start a breeding project and maybe some documentation on YouTube if you wanted to start a YouTube channel. I know everybody is wanting to start a YouTube channel out there. There are niches to be filled. I would love to see people start filling those niches where maybe you're working with a particular species and you're showing the world that this can be done at a high welfare standard. The big channels on YouTube are showing us how to breed in an industrialized way. We need to stand up and show that doesn't that is not the way that it has to be done, that there are other ways to do this. Again, This is a hole in the market and I feel like the first person that starts doing this will have some success on YouTube as well as in a breeding operation and which again will help us grow and stabilize herpetoculture and make sure that we are engaging in behavior that is respectful for the animals that we keep. I think at the end of the day that is what we all need to be focused on and there are ways to do this and I would love to see what you guys get up to. So please include TC and I in whatever projects you get up to because we can make herpetoculture better. It can be done. Thank you very much to CustomReptileHabitats.com for sponsoring the episode of the podcast. Again, if you're looking for any reptile equipment, go check out the affiliate links in both the show notes as well as the YouTube description. If you are interested in becoming a patron, head to Patreon.com slash Animals at Home. And for $5 a month, you can have early access to the episodes as well as an opportunity to submit questions to guests. And I also share all my podcast analytics on there and polls and whatnot. So if you're interested in that, go check it out. And if you aren't following me on Instagram, you can find me at Animals at Home CA. All right, I think that's the end of the episode. Please, if you found this valuable, this is one of those episodes that really should be shared. I think we want to share TC's wisdom with everybody. And this conversation, as I said, can be foundational in how we move forward with small batch breeding. And I want this to be on the ears of every reptile keeper. So if you can do me a favor, please go share it. Even if your friends on Facebook don't even like reptiles, share it on there. The more eyes on this, the better. Again, we are trying to be stewards of herpetoculture. We want to show the non-reptile folks in our community that we're serious about this. We're serious about the welfare. We highly respect the animals that we keep and conversations like this prove that. I will talk to you guys next week.